are listening to a message from Westside Christian Church, located in the heart of Wichita, Kansas. We hope this teaching helps you to join Jesus and bring life. We would love to hear your story. Email us at hello at westsidechristian.org to share what God is doing in your life. Well, good morning again, y'all. Yeah, one thing you'll notice is I say y'all to maybe an excessive amount. It's not intentional. It's just part of the way I speak. But uh, my name, once again, Josh Gores. Excited to be here with y'all in, in case, see, there it is again. So uh, you'll get used to it. You'll hear it a lot this morning. But uh, just excited to be here. Excited for us to gather together to worship uh, in spirit, to worship in truth as we study God's word together. Uh, my wife and I, we've been here almost two years in the Wichita area, and we are, we are just blessed that where God has called us, we are blessed to be a part of this journey of discipleship and of faith and of growing together as a family. Uh, and so we are we're just thankful to be here. If you've got a Bible, we would encourage you, Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Uh, we've got, <clears throat> excuse me, we've got it on the screen as well. Uh, but before we kind of get started, just we're continuing this cross Crown and Cross series, where we're looking at the idea that Jesus is both Savior, that he has saved us, that he has died for our sins, that he has forgiven us, and that he is King, that that he's the Lord of our lives, and that we submit anything and everything under his reign, under his dominion, under his power. But I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we'll dive into Mark 11. Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray that as we open your word, Father, that as we study the triumphant entry, as we study the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, Father, that we might see your truth displayed, that we might see your hope, that we might see the reality of Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. Father, be with us in this, this time. May it be your words, not mine, that we hear. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 11, we're going to be reading the first 19 verses of this, uh, but we're actually going to break it up into three different sections. And so Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it, and if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Just kind of curious, this is where we kind of interact a little bit. But how many of you have maybe heard this story before? Okay, so the vast majority of you probably heard it before. If you haven't, uh, it's a story that is typically told near Easter. It's told as a preparation for the resurrection. It's told where we talk about just the Messiah coming in, and he's being celebrated, and he's being uh, rejoiced and lifted up, and then we kind of prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter. You know, the fact that in a week, Christ would be crucified, that he would be buried Uh, And then that he would rise again victorious, that which we celebrate most gloriously. 
Uh, but just kind of curious, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear this passage? Just shout it out. You got to shout a little bit louder. The king is coming. Is that kind of the general picture that you get? So for me, the first thing that comes to my mind is this idea of a victory parade, right? Like this idea that there's a conquering king who has come into the town, and as he's riding in, the people are rejoicing at the victory that he would provide. Uh, As you might have been able to tell from the loop, uh, I am an Astros fan. Uh, I'm also an Indianapolis Colts fan. And the sad reality of this past year is that uh, my teams did not win championships, Uh, The even sadder reality is the two teams that did, the Chicago Cubs, we're not going to be friends, sorry. (laughs) The Chicago Cubs and the New England Patriots are the teams that I, to say that I despise them is is maybe uh, an understatement. Like, the fact that they won almost physically made me sick to my stomach. Like, they are just, the teams that, like, if anyone could win a championship and it's not my team, just don't let those two teams win. Uh, But something that's kind of become synonymous with this idea of winning championships uh, is the city's victory parade, right? So a couple of days after they win, the city gathers together and they're welcoming their victors of a sport. Like these aren't heroes on the battlefront. These aren't conquering kings. They're welcoming athletes as they come into town and as they go through the town. And so this past year, the Patriots and the, the Cubs, it was estimated a minimum of a million people at each site showed up with some saying that Chicago broke all records and brought it was 5 million people, right? And so 5 million people, a million people, just a ton of people gathering together that as the players are going through the streets, they're chanting, they're singing, they're rejoicing at all that has happened and all that has come. And I think that's something that we see here. It's something that we've seen throughout history is that when a king is victorious in a faraway place and as he comes back to town, People line the streets celebrating. People line the streets talking, uh, chanting, excited about this idea of victory. Right? It's, it's just this huge morale booster that they have there. And as we look at Mark's gospel, we see this celebration that's taking place. Uh, we see this celebration where people are raising their voices. They're singing aloud. They're quoting scriptures. They're fervent about this Jesus who is coming into town on a colt. And scripture doesn't tell us exactly how large this crowd was, but we know that the crowd is loud. They're enthusiastic. They're excited about it. Hosanna, they're shouting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they cry. Uh, But the reality is they weren't thinking of Christ uh, in a spiritual sense here. They weren't thinking of Messiah in that way. They were ready for Christ to come and kick Romans to the rear. That they were ready to come in and have Christ the Messiah beat back their oppressors. Like, sure, they've got this religious language going on. But if we're being honest, like the subtext of what they're saying is something along the lines of destroy Rome. Do it with me. Destroy. That's like three of you. Come on now. (laughs) Destroy Rome. Destroy Rome. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. The fever pitch is going, destroy Rome destroy Rome, destroy, and then they all just break out in this huge, loud cheer. Like, that's really what's happening as Jesus is riding in. They are just this fever pitch that here is the one who's going to come, and he's going to show those Romans where they really belong. 
He's the one who's going to put us, God's chosen people, on the pedestal. He'll reign as king, but we will be in our rightful place. Uh, We will have our Messiah. We will have our cake and our exuberance, and we will party like it's in the hundreds. Right? That was a joke. That just... That's all right. You'll, you maybe will get it when you come home. That's all right. Um, but what we see is that like, they are just excited. Here's him who the prophets were talked about. This is him who will save them. But their view of the Messiah was incredibly short-sighted. See, they, they thought of him just simply as he would be the physical one who would come and save them for their oppressors. Uh, but what they got right is that Jesus is Messiah. Amen? Uh, that, that Jesus is Messiah. And before we can go deeper into our story this morning, before we can look deeper into this narrative, we have to address not only as a congregation, but individually within our hearts, what does it mean to have the authority and the lordship of Jesus front and center? You know, what does it look like that Christ would be my king? Because the reality is he's not merely a good teacher. He's not merely some prophet. He's not merely a man. He's not some footnote in human history, but what we see is that he is the word that was with God, the word that was God, the word that was with God in the beginning. He's the one that the prophets preached about, the one that God's people anxiously anticipated and awaited the arrival of. He's the salvation of God for the people of God who was crushed and beaten so that we might have his peace. And as he comes into the city in this passage. Uh, For you and I as Christians, as we think about this, we rejoice knowing that he has risen. Knowing that he has assured the victory of our salvation. We rejoice knowing that that which was wrong, that which was hurt, that which was broken, he will restore, he will make right, he will make whole. And so as we look at this passage this morning, the picture we see is Christ as conquering king coming in with grace and with humility and with love and with compassion. And I think that's the picture that we need to maybe have in our hearts and before our minds uh, as we continue reading, uh, picking up in verse 12. It says, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, following the triumphant entry, uh, we see these short verses that Jesus has on an encounter with a fig tree. Uh, An encounter with this tree that as he's looking at it, it looks healthy from a distance. It looks vibrant. It's in leaves. Uh, But he quickly realizes has no fruit. Uh, and so we see this, and, it, and if we're being honest, like for us that might be, oh, well, it's not the season for figs. That makes sense. But the reality is, in, as a fig tree leafs, there should at least be some fruit hanging on it. It may not be the big, juicy figs that maybe was ripe for eating, but there should have been at least some evidence of fruit on a, on a tree that had been bloomed. And yet here he is, and we see that that's not the case. And I think here's what we need to understand maybe in view of the first 11 verses and then his encounter here and our knowledge of who Jesus is. And it's the idea that if anyone is qualified to be a fruit inspector, it's Jesus. You know, if there's anyone who is capable and qualified of looking at a tree 
and determining the health, the vitality, the, the fruit of said tree, surely it's got to be the one who has made the tree and who is holding the tree together. Uh, you know, as if there's anyone who could diagnose the state of the tree, it's one who knows all things about that tree. Uh, just being a little bit um, honest with y'all this morning, when we go to the grocery, uh, when we go grocery shopping, going to the grocery store, I am awful when it comes to picking out bananas. Like I don't know what it is, but I could pick out bananas and we'll bring them home, and by the time they get home, they are ready to be uh, thrown away or made banana bread or something. Like I just, I'm awful with it. Uh, and it's the, the go-to response is, hey, hon, can you go get some bananas for us? Because there's just something about it. I, y'all are giving me weird looks. Like, I know what you're thinking. Like, this guy can't even pick out bananas, and he's up here on stage. Like, really? What sort of loser is he? That's okay. But the reality is, like, I don't spend the time, the energy, the effort, the, the time that it would take to pick out a set of bananas and making sure that they're ripe and ready for the picking. And so when it comes to fruit, when it comes to physical fruit, uh, but I would say even more importantly, when it comes to spiritual fruit, uh, for us to understand that if there's anyone that's qualified to be a fruit inspector, it's Jesus. Uh, If there's anyone who is qualified to be able to tell the health of the people, it's Jesus. Uh, You see, the, the fig tree in this encounter here, it's not just some random historical reference. Uh, it's a metaphor to a much larger narrative. So we have Jesus, and he's coming in, he's riding in, he's being celebrated. The next day, he's hungry, and he encounters this fig tree. And then he goes, and he cleanses the temple. And then right after that, we bring up the fig tree again. Mark's gospel brings it up again, showing us to it. And as we look at the fig tree story, we see that it's, much part, it's part of a much larger narrative. In the Old Testament, the fig tree is typically associated with the nation of Israel. Uh, If you look in Jeremiah 8.13, it says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there is no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Hosea will later write, uh, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. But they came to Bel Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the things they loved. And so Jesus, he comes upon this fig tree and it's a healthy, vibrant looking tree and it's appearing in leaf, it's bushy, it's ready for fruit to be there. And the fig tree and look promised much but delivered nothing. Like the Kansas lottery, there's a lot of hype to it, but there's not a lot of delivery. Uh, There's a lot that this fig tree, as we look at it, should be producing, and yet the reality is, it's not. So what does Jesus do? He curses it, right? And we've got to understand, Jesus is not being immature here. Jesus is not simply hangry. You know, he's not simply hungry and angry, and so he takes out that anger on the fig tree. That's not what's going on here, but instead, Jesus is using this fig tree... He's using this encounter of the fig tree to provide an object lesson as he and his disciples head into Jerusalem. Verse 15, it says, They came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus goes into the temple, the place where God's people gather together to worship. And what does he find? Like at this juncture, he's not finding people lifting up songs of praise. He's not hearing the praise band singing Hillsong's Oceans, right? Like he's, that was another joke. You can laugh. Hillsong wasn't around near them. Man, that's all right. Jesus comes into this place, uh, and what he sees is that people had turned the place of God's worship, the place where God was to be front, center, glorified, and they had turned it into a marketplace. Uh, They had turned it into a place that was maybe bustling with religious activity, but bearing no fruit for God's eternal kingdom. You know, there's this expectation that the temple... That God's temple, where God's people gathered, would produce fruit. And instead, Jesus finds that the house of prayer for all nations has been turned into a den of robbers. And it's in this encounter in the temple, it's where we read 15 through 19, where our minds should immediately drift back to that lesson with the fig tree. As one commentator put it, what happened to the fig tree would later befall the temple. And in AD 70, the temple falls, the temple is ultimately destroyed. And it's in this cleansing of the temple where we see the connection of the fig tree. Beautiful, vibrant, seemingly healthy, seemingly in full leaf, and yet no fruit on it. And we hear Jesus' condemning words of it. And as we consider the fig tree and as we consider the subsequent clearing out of the temple, we should consider our own lives, our own hearts, our own relationship with the Lord. And we should reflect on what does it mean to follow Christ as our king. Because in doing that, as we we think on that, as we meditate on it, I think we come to the realization that disciples bear fruit, not merely the appearance of it. What's the fruit of a fig tree? We'd mostly say figs, right? No, the fruit of a fig tree is more fig trees. The fruit of an apple tree is more apple trees. And the fruit of a disciple is more disciples who make disciples who make disciples and so on and so forth. All through the glory that, all unto the glory of God as provided by the strength of God. And so what we see is that disciples bear fruit, not merely the appearance of it. You know, as ones who have experienced the life-saving, transformative power of Jesus Christ, there's an expectation that you and I will bear fruit for the kingdom. As those who at one point in time were dead, and because of God, we've been saved by grace through faith, and now have life, there's an overwhelming conviction displayed throughout the scriptures that we are able to live life abundantly and fruitfully, fully for the glory of God's kingdom. The gospel message that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us now, leads us to bear witnesses, excuse me, leads us to bear witness to God's glory, compels us to live our lives as salt and light for the kingdom in response to all that God has said and all that God has done. 
disciples bear fruit, not merely the appearance of it. And the reality is, too often I think the church has found itself producing the appearance of fruit without any true fruit. Like as I look through my heart, as I look through my life, the reality of it is there's been times in my life uh, where I've been able to put on the appearance of health, where I've been able to put on the appearance of fruitfulness, but the reality is I was like that fig tree. I, I was like the fig tree that ultimately hears the condemning words of Christ. I don't know about you, uh, I, didn't, I wasn't born into the church. I know that there are some who are born into the church and they grow up their entire lives in the church. Uh, but I, I really came into the church uh, probably about the time, when, 2001. So I've been in the church and I've been around the church for more than half of my life. And, and if I'm being honest with you, I know how to play the game. Like, I know what it means to drive up into the church parking lot on Sunday morning and to act like you've got it all together. To act like everything is perfect, right? I I know what it means to pray and to act as though uh, things are well when things inside, there's guilt and shame and struggles. And I think too often the church has done that. Too often I've done that where I've made it an appearance of God's fruit in my life an appearance of God's leading through prayer, and the reality is I was far from it. And and as I think about that this morning, as I think about it in light of this passage, I think for us the question should be, uh, what does it mean to live for God's glory? Because I'm willing to bet that I'm not the only person in here who's been a fig tree, right? I'm willing to bet that there have been seasons in your life where you have struggled for fruit, because of your own work, because of your own pride, because of your own fill-in-the-blank there. And so as we read this, this passage of the fig tree and the subsequent clearing out of the temple, I think we've got to understand that it's not about performing functions or habits or putting on an appearance. Because disciples bear fruit, not merely the appearance of it. You see, the temple was the place for God's people to gather together for worship. The temple was the place for where this real godly change would take place throughout the world. Uh, And instead, Jesus comes in and he sees they're all faking it. Maybe not all, that's probably not fair, but he sees that it's a production. Becoming more about the appearance of fruit than true fruit for God. So where does that leave us this morning? You know, what does that mean? And how might the Spirit be leading you and I to consider and respond uh, to Mark 11? I think before we can do anything else, we have to ask that question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This journey through the gospel of Mark that y'all have been on, right? The crown and the cross. Who is this Jesus? Jesus as both Savior and King. You know, do you believe that? Have you accepted that truth? Have you been saved by grace through faith? Have you laid down your life in submission to Christ, not only as one who saves you to get out of hell, but one who has saved you to live a life abundantly under his lordship? As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he's hailed as the Messiah. He's hailed as the conquering king, and conquering king he is. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death. We have had victoriousness through him. We neither fear nor are held captive to those things in our life because of his power. And I would just say, if Jesus is not Lord and Savior in your life, 
Uh, maybe you've never made that decision, or maybe you've been faking that decision for 40 years. Man, if Jesus is not Lord and Savior of your life, I would encourage you, uh, after this service, talk to TJ, talk to Kyle, talk to an elder, talk to the person you came here with. Uh, but let's not fake this any longer. Let's walk together in this journey as to what it means that Christ is both Savior and King in our lives. Because if we're a new creation in Him, it changes everything. So maybe that's that first camp. But if the second camp is like, I've been saved by Christ. Like, my life is hidden in Christ. I'm a new creation. And if you're a new creation in Christ, I think there's a couple ways that you and I can respond to this passage this week. First, I think we have to check our hearts and our motives. I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but if you've been coming to church for more than 20 years, just raise your hand. Yeah, so as I think about this, I constantly have to check my heart and my motives. Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I say the things that I say? How do, why do I live the way that I live? Am I playing church and going through the motions of faith? Or is the gospel message the truth that Christ is enough, holding me firm and fast to him? We need to check ourselves lest we find ourselves too late that we're simply going through the motions. We're simply putting on a facade of church and hear those sickly words that Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me. Friends, I've got to tell you that if our foundation is on anything other than the atoning work of Jesus Christ, we're lost. If my salvation is on anything else other than what he has done and the glorious gospel, I've got to repent and confess knowing that he is able to forgive and save. We need to dive deep into the word, embracing the gospel message, embracing the truth of more than ourselves. And I think for many of us in here, that's probably ultimately where we find maybe the greatest response from this text this morning. Uh, In John chapter 15, we see Jesus talking, uh, he talks like a botanist, but he talks about what it means to be connected to the vine. You know, there's the branches, you and I, there's the vine, and the only way that these branches can bear fruit is when they're connected to the vine. And he says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch. And withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Folks, the way that you and I might bear fruit, not merely the appearance of fruit, but real, healthy, solid, good fruit. The way that we bear fruit, the way in which we might stand the test of time, the way that we might not only appear healthy, but truly be healthy, is when we remain firmly established in Jesus Christ. When our hearts and our minds and our lives and our relationships and the things that we say, the things that we do, the way that we spend our money are firmly planted in that sweet, redeeming gospel message. The one that says, it's not my works that saves me. It's not my appearance of church attendance. It's not my faithfulness uh, over the years, but rather God's faithfulness to save me. That while I was dead, Christ has saved me. And so fulfilling messianic prophecy, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Christ is hailed as conquering king and hero. And as the last week of his earthly ministry begins, the visual of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple remind us that Christ is both savior and king. That Christ was crucified, taking on the sins of this world. 
that he was buried and rose again, conquering the sting of death, and that he now reigns victoriously. Amen? That, that he now reigns victoriously, and as his followers, as those who say, I am a Christian, I am a disciple, I follow Christ, as his followers, we have now been commissioned with this good news. Uh, we have now been commissioned to go to the nations, to go to our neighborhoods, to go to our community and to our city. Not that we might save them, but that God might use us, bearing fruit in us, to bring glory to his name and for his kingdom. He's called on us to bear witness to him. He's appointed us to bear fruit as we remain in him. And as we look towards next Sunday, and as we look to head into this week, may we live out of the strength that Christ provides. Uh, may we walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. May we bear fruit in keeping with the righteousness that comes by faith in him alone. And may we remember the fruit of a fig tree. The fruit of a fig tree is not figs. The fruit of a fig tree is more fig trees. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, you are good and you are holy. And Father, we pray that our hearts would abide soundly in you. Father, that our, our mind and our strength and our hope and all of that would remain firmly in you and who you are. Lord, I pray that in all things and for all things, we would seek your glory. Lord, where we've put up a facade and where we've played church, I pray that we would repent and confess, finding that you are gracious and full of mercy. Father, I pray, I pray that we would rejoice, uh, knowing that sin and death are not that finality, but that he has risen, that he is the conquering king, that the parade is here and now, that we might reign victoriously because of what he has done. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us at westsidechristian.org.